The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, welcome, everyone. In this series, we've focused on history, heroines, and warriors, peak performance, discrimination, disability, inclusion, just about everything. And here we have come a long way around and want to focus on one of the most important and impactful elements of all for women in sport, the coach. We're going to hear from one renowned sports psychology and empowered coach trainer. And then later on, we'll add in one of her global colleagues from the Spanish-speaking world, uh, Professor Joan Duda. Welcome, welcome. Uh, we have a pattern of beginning uh, at the beginnings of uh, for each guest so that hopefully listeners will be able to hear your perspective from a somewhat more personal basis. So um, let's begin with your own personal long road, Joan. I know you have been an exceptional athlete. So uh, beginning at the beginning, tell us about your family growing up, how you got involved in sport, who encouraged you, discouraged you, that whole picture. Yes, well, th- thank you, Carol, for inviting me to be part of um, this, this show. I've been uh, keeping track of the, the series and uh, have really been struck by this, this important push for more inclusive um, sport for all. I think in our conversation today, one of the points we're going to try to to make is that, and I know it's something we all embrace, is that we want really it to be um, empowering sport for all, not just sport by 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 itself. And we'll talk a little bit more about about that. And and then also just a quick cheers to you for all you have been doing with your advocacy and contributions to the field of sports psych and women in sport. Um, trailblazer and then still uh, leading uh, all of us in these efforts. Um, well, I mean, it was quite, to think back to the, the start of the sporting journey, um, I found myself smiling, and I guess that's a good sign. A good it sign. A, yeah. It was a positive start. I mean, I remember a very active girl, always outside playing, hitting, shooting, kicking balls, uh, running, biking around. Um, I recall my father was a key influence uh, in terms of being the the active supporter out in the back with my brother and I, whether we were shooting baskets. Our backyard was a, a really a disaster because we we had a basketball court on the grass and we had a, a place where he built where we could um, practice some um, pitching with a backstop. And, uh, and I do remember with fondness when I was only about three or four, he bought me that first um, little device, wiffle ball, um, uh, set up where you kind of kick it, push it, and then the air blows a little ball and you get a chance to wax the ball. So he was he was very important. Now, my mother was not so much of a, um, an active sports uh, woman, um, but she's always loved sports. And I think what's, what really occurred to me now that I've reminisced is that 
for both of my parents, I mean, so I had one, one brother, um, our being involved in sports was a natural thing. It was encouraged. And I never had a sense that it was more important for him than for me. Um, I never felt pushed, but I always felt felt uh, supported. And I think that that's been really key, uh, I think, in terms of my sport engagement. Um, I was aware quite young that not everyone had it so good <laughs> in terms of uh, parental support. Um, growing up on the East Coast, New Jersey, we had... Uh, uh, it was wonderful, um, um, various ethnic groups and religious groups and so on, and I was quite conscious at a young age that uh, some of my friends were not quite as free and liberated to play sport as I was, or definitely there was um, a differential in terms of how it was considered, how how important. So, um, yeah, significant other support, as a social scientist would say, um, but I also think that opportunity and access were also important. And that, I think, kind of dictated which sports I went, went in. I mean, I'm a, a tall gal. Um, I think growing up now and learning about that sport, I would have loved to have been a volleyball player. But at that time, um, I was on the East Coast and not on uh, the uh, West Coast with all the beaches and, uh, and volleyball programs. Um, I ended up playing basketball, but I, I would have loved to have been introduced to it earlier. Uh, but that didn't quite happen because at that time in the history of women in sport on the East Coast of the U.S., um, basically it was the Catholic schools that had the women um, girls basketball, and I went to a public school. So that didn't happen too much later in terms of um, you know op- opportunity. So um, what was there? There was a grassroots softball program where I grew up. And that's where I started to play more, I guess you'd call it, organized um, sport. Began playing at about the age of 10 or so, 9 or 10. And one thing led to the next. You know, you, you end, up, uh, end up being on the all-star team. The all-star team was really quite good. It ended up being an intact team that became a traveling team. And before you know it, we were playing at the highest level of amateur softball, um, ASA, traveling around the East Coast. Um, I know that you're, you're a... Carol and I, I remember playing teams such as Lyndon Arians, are coached by uh, really uh, also trailblazers in that sport, like Millie Deegan, who was called the Babe Ruth of women's softball, and had a chance to play against um, um, her team. So I think when I look back on my socialization, um, I saw opportunity. I was able to take it. I was able to get into three sports at a very young age. It wasn't straightforward. Um, the path, but I think it was fortuitous in, in many regards. Mm-hmm. Um, was this, I'm thinking about the competitive phase, and particularly um, this is important for us today because we're going to be talking about coaching so much. Um, was that high school age, and how long did you actually uh, maintain a kind of uh, competitive or participation role with sport? Yeah, well, I mean, I did persist um, to college and beyond. And um, again, thinking back on it now, um, I went to college and participated in sport at a very interesting time in the evolution of women's sport in the U.S. It was in the 70s, um, just when um, Title IX came into being. And to, to give an idea of the tremendous contrast that women were experiencing at that time, um, I was at Rutgers College at that moment, in around 1973, and the way I was recruited <laughs> to 
could play basketball was that um, this this um, uh, coach that was um, at the barn at that time, that small gym that Rutgers had on their campus, uh, saw me walking uh, to class in front of her window and yelled out, hey, you, come on in, you're playing basketball for us. I think it had <laughs> something to do with my, my height, not how many books I was carrying. And I was recruited that way, and we, you know, we played at these strange times when the men were not um, playing. We, um, we only, most of the time, had access to half of the gym, so we had a very tight offense and defense when we finally played on a, a full-size gym at competitions. Um, we sold brownies to uh, support, buy our uniforms, to rent a van, to um, go to away games. That was my freshman year. By the time I was a senior, we had amalgamated Rutgers College with Douglas College, and we were now Rutgers uh, University, so I played on the Rutgers University women's basketball team. Um, uh, we had a full-time head coach, Teresa Grentz, who went on, I think, and coached about 19, 20 years at Rutgers. Two assistant coaches, a trainer, a physio, someone who prepared our game clothes, someone who washed our practice uniforms. Unbelievable. In four yeah, you years. were in heaven. And, you were in uh, heaven. Yeah, uh, it was very interesting to see the, the transitions and its impact and actually changed to more of a business, very much outcome-oriented um, approach to, to sport. And uh, even my first flight, I traveled quite a bit like you, um, was on a, a trip to Pittsburgh for um, a tournament. So women's basketball brought that to me. And I guess the other thing I just would add um, at that time, once again, Title IX, we started to have our first athletic scholarships for women, and I was a recipient of one of those now for softball, actually. I remember the total amount for the year was something like $250, and uh, I was very excited. It was a real honor. My parents didn't have much money, so it helped them to pay my t- tuition. Uh, but it also changed things, too, because we were now being paid for doing something we loved, and uh, and then importantly, sometimes the coaches um, reminded us that now we were were paid. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, one thing, Joan, I've noticed about the professional people on my programs: very often, something that occurred in their youth came back to be an important part of their research and their career. So I'm wondering if you had any experience personally with coaches that influenced you to the focus you have now, or maybe it was simply observations that you made, but um, was there a single event or kind of a ongoing saga that uh, interested you in coaching style and, mm. and other parts of yeah, the coaching role? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think probably more of an um, a ongoing saga would capture it, and also I think um, if I look back to my youth sport days and going on to playing uh, intercollegiate uh, basketball, softball, and, and tennis, um, it was my own experiences and also what I saw um, in terms of impact on other players and athletes with respect to coaching uh, behaviors. And um, there's, I, did, I think there's no question that my primary research and applied interest to this state um, stem stem from those early experiences. I, I seem to somehow be aware. I didn't know how to conceptualize it. I didn't know anything about research or theory. <laughs> but I, I, I had a sense of what seemed to 
uh, in power and make people feel, young people feel good about themselves and ready to go for it and to embrace the challenge and what coaches seem to do that seem to disintegrate that sense of confidence and um, uh, take the smile off of players, um, you know, in terms of coming to training and, and to, to competing. So, you know, when I look back, I mean, I, I played for coaches who were empowering and, and um, certainly did things to help my sense of competence and confidence. But I probably was more struck by the ones who were more negative in terms of their behaviors. And, uh, you know, it, it, the other point, I think it occurred when we talk about good coaching, what is good coaching? That it was important to distinguish between what coaches do in terms of the content of their teaching skills, evoking strategies, you know, whether they know the technique very well, and the, what I call the motivational message of how all that's being conveyed. <clears throat> and really, when you talk about where athletes are coming from and how they experience sport and whether they want to stay in sport, that latter part is very, very important. And I think I mean, the other interesting issue is sometimes all this gets convoluted with, with outcome. And, I mean, I... I uh, again, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. I played for disempowering coaches, and we were we had times where we were very successful. Uh, we won, but there was always quite um, important cost, whether it's myself or other athletes. You saw a lot of overuse injuries. You saw a diminished sense of self-concept. You saw stress, and importantly, you saw changes in motivation. Where originally you were playing because you just loved the game. And you wanted to be there, and you know it wasn't always roses, but you wanted to keep pushing the envelope. And then you started to play because you felt you you had to, and um, for someone or something something else. So the intrinsic joy was was gone. Mm. Um, I because I know you a little bit, Joan. We've been sports mm-hmm. psychology people working together for quite a while. Um, I know that uh, you have then participated in youth and secondary and collegiate coaching, uh, I mean, sorry, playing, and then uh, you went to do sports psychology consulting work with the gym, in, within the gymnastic world, um, out, yeah. I think outside of collegiate area. Um, did you see any uh, progression from better to worse or um, any kind of patterning in the coaches in, in, in an age group sense, uh, you know, from the very young to the very old, or did you feel like the there was a coaching model that was coming down that even people that were working with youth sports were, were sort of fashioning themselves after. Well, I th- yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the USA Gymnastics work, so I got into sports psychology after my undergraduate psychology um, degree and uh, went on with that specialization and um, always have been very um, active with research and, and uh, applied. I always try to make the point that those um, don't necessarily need to be divorced <laughs> and actually maybe shouldn't be divorced if we want to keep um, you know, raising the game of, of, of uh, our applied efforts. And um, so one such opportunity um, came my way, gosh, that was back in the 90s, um, uh, where USA Gymnastics was looking for a sports psychologist that um, could relate to the, to the girls and um, hopefully... Um, also, they were very conscious about trying to change the culture. So I started working with um, that particular national governing body. Um, it, I mean, it's interesting because one 
thing I would say was that there was variability, you know, and sometimes we just look at a particular coach or one that people hear about or really negative um uh, um, actually horror stories um, that did occur and, and are really regretful. Um, but we also had a lot of coaches that were, you know, kind of going in the right direction and doing their best and really keeping the interest of the athlete um, at, at heart. Um, I, one of the things that USA Gymnastics did at that time, which I, I think was, was a real positive step, was that they tried to link the research and practice. So myself and a nutritionist at the time, a gentleman named Dr. Dan uh, Benedot, we always did research. We got, we got data. And then we would bring the findings back. So it's not just um, trust us. We have honest faces. But look what we're seeing here. Look what we're seeing in terms of the evolution of the, the gymnast. Um, from the, the, the young ones all the way up to the, the, the system. And what we did as well was to make sure... We always shared um, the information to every important body uh, within that organization. So whether it was also the uh, the management, as well as the national, international level coaches, as well as more of the junior, grassroots, recreational coaches, as well as the parents, and with the athletes themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you always ah, had a, what, you know, a, you had what a novel concept. What a novel concept. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> and and this this point about. Um, uh, you know what, Joan? You know. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, it's, we have to take a short break here, so okay. please hang on to that thought. We'll pick it up I will. Uh, uh, on the other side of the break. We'll finish with Joan's last point here and also move to looking at the empowering coaching and the major research projects involving delivery and evaluation of those programs when we're back on the other side of the break. your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, We were just finishing up with Joan uh, in relation to her work with the um, U.S. Gymnastics Federation. Was there anything else, Joan? Sorry, I had to cut in there. We have to take our breaks at a certain time. Yeah, I, I guess what I, what I learned from that is the importance of trying to spread the message to all the different um, 
uh, individuals, groups of individuals that are involved in a sport. So hopefully to, to have that be uh, greater accountability, everyone has the same information um, and then hopefully can progress uh, forward. I think what also I've learned over the years, though, is that progress is not always linear and um, people change who's in control, you know, what, what is happening, other agendas. And so it's, it's, you know, it's always something we need to continuously work on. But when we talk about empowering coaching and these types of training programs, um, they've evolved over many, many years of research and, and practice. And certainly the early days with um, USA Gymnastics is where, where, um, where some of this started. Well, let's get right to it with the empowering coaching work that you're speaking of here. I know this is something in which you, as well as our second guest, Professor Balagar, um, are deeply engaged. So, uh, Joan, it's sort of like uh, starting with the beginning again, but now with the beginning of empowering coaching and also a related project, Promoting Adolescent Physical Activity, or PAPA. How did these programs evolve and, and how did you launch them? Yeah, so in, in empowering coaching is, is um, a theory-based, evidence-based um, training program that's, as I said, has evolved over many, many years of, of research and, and, and practice. The focus of, of the program overall, I think philosophically, is, is to, to, to work with coaches and other significant others in sport to create environments that do enable athletes that do facilitate their autonomous motivation, that they're still doing sport because they want to um, out of their own, own, own choice. And, uh, you know, a, a key message is that coaches matter. They create this, these motivational climates. They're very influential. They're a function of the, how they give feedback, how they evaluate, how they group athletes, how they exchange, uh, et cetera, um, but then um, hold very, very important implications for how athletes experience, whether they want to continue to engage, how they develop in sports and, and, and their well-being. So empowering coaching, when we speak about the word empowering, I mean, that, that word is used a lot anymore, but it has a very particular meaning within these training programs. It, it's about what coaches can do to promote athletes' sense of, of a resilient, mastery-focused competence so that they, even when they're not winning or when they're challenged or whatever, they they have a sense that they're able and they you know keep um, enhancing their confidence. Importantly, that they have a sense of autonomy, voice, choice. Their their perspective is is um, listened to and and understood to the extent possible. And also that the environment is respectful and caring. There's a connection with the athlete and the coach, and even um, you know athlete to to athlete. That's safe. That's secure. And uh, and even to the extent is not always tied to, to performance, to, but to the, the people themselves. And when we talk about disempowering climates, they're very ego-involving, they're very controlling, sometimes even intimidating, and are more likely to have athletes questioning their ability, feeling worse about themselves. They're playing sports and they're feeling worse about themselves, less intrinsically involved, and, and so on. So these training programs, as they've evolved, they're, they're very interactive because you don't, you, know, you don't memorize how to optimally motivate um, you don't go into a room. I learned that w- way back in my career. You don't go into a room and start telling coaches what they do right and what they do wrong. They need to understand that you need to take them on the road with you. And so that's kind of the philosophy and the approach, the pedagogical approach in these workshops is to have coaches understand what is quality motivation, 
what kind of behavior is influencing it, to think what they do that is adaptive. And all coaches do some good things, even the, the worst coach in the world does some good things, and how that can be even more empowering in the future, and to have them start to recognize, importantly, what they are doing or what they're saying, which can be disempowering and why. So we have these programs specific to sports, also generic versions, you know, classroom on the pitch type versions of the, the workshop, but we're very much connected with research and always trying to evaluate. So that's, that's really exemplified in this PAPA project that you referred to, and that's right. PAPA was uh, promoting adolescent physical activity. It was a European-based project. Um, I think um, we've learned it was probably the largest uh, youth sport, coach education, sports psychology research trial um, to date. It involved um, uh, colleagues from five different countries. So we had England uh, in Europe, um, France, Greece, Spain, and Norway. And what we did was to take empowering coaching, um, tailor it for what is the most popular sport in in, uh, foot, in um, Europe, which is um, youth football, and then deliver it and evaluate. Evaluate with different methods, observation, questionnaire, um, qualitative interviews, and so on. We had almost uh, 8,000 children involved in that project. Uh, we trained up... Um, tutors, actually coach tutors themselves rather than us academics to deliver it, and over 100 workshops were delivered in that main trial. And what we found um, was, A, further evidence about how impactful coaches' behaviors are. When they were more um, empowering as the season went on, the kids, the kids thrived. They felt good about themselves. They wanted to come back. They enjoyed. They had more autonomous and motivation. When coaches were more disempowering as the season went on, we saw very different um, attitudes and behaviors and perceptions in, in the, um, the young people. And the second major finding, which I think is really critical, is we found that the training itself had an impact, had an impact on the coaches' behaviors, which we looked at um, uh, objectively through observation, and had a, an impact on that motivational climate that we're talking about in terms of how the young people saw this environment that, um, you know, they're training in and, and uh, competing in. So um, uh, very positive uh, uh, findings, and also, um, importantly, across five different countries, different cultures, different uh, Ways that sport is um, organized for young people, we, we saw these uh, these effects. It sounds like uh, an incredible project. Um, I know that uh, you were keen on having a team, Joan, to work with you. So maybe you could um, help out and introduce Isabel Balaguer, who is one of your collaborators. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a pleasure. So, I mean, by its nature, this type of work has been very international. We're interested in global climate change, but from a motivational <laughs> right. standpoint in, in, in sport. And, and um, Isabel uh, and her team from the University of Valencia, where Isabel's a professor, um, has exemplified um, these type of efforts. So, uh, hola, Isabel. Hola, hello. Hello, hope you're, hope you're well. Maybe you can um, start by just... Uh, but describing a little bit about um, your program and, and the work you do with your team at Valencia. Okay, okay. Hello to everybody. Thanks, Carol, for inviting me to be part of this interesting program today. 
and thanks, John, for introducing me. Um, I listen, John, and I think that when she speaks, you feel the passion of uh, uh, she has for the sport, for uh, how important is the motivational part. And uh, I always have been interested in the promotion of motivation and uh, in the optimal development of the athletes. And I have uh, shared this passion with the members of my group. Now, my group is uh, the research group in sports psychology. At the University of Valencia, we have an interdisciplinary group composed of specialists in social psychology, clinical and health psychology, psychological assessment and physical education. And uh, we have been conducting research and applied work for some decades. In, especially, we start with the promotion of active and healthy lifestyles uh, with the uh, adolescent population. And uh, in the course of our research in that uh, topic, we found that when young people are task-oriented, is more interested in the improvement, giving the best of themselves, when they are self-determining their actions, intrinsically motivated, when they really love what uh, they are doing, is when their lifestyles are healthier. And this is uh, one of the ways to promote their well-being and their optimal development. Uh, this part, we, we also study in that time uh, values and uh, um, self-esteem, but uh, motivation was a very, very important uh, um, variable for us. And uh, this is related with uh, the topic we are talking today because uh, what is important for, for uh, the adolescents to, to feel really involved in what they do and to, to really develop their well-being is the climate that is creating the, the coach. And these uh, coaches, our parents, our peers, when they promote uh, empowering, empowering climates is when they really develop the quality of their motivations. Uh, we have uh, conducting different research. I, with John, I have been uh, working in applied work, in, uh, in tennis, in football, but for me, are, uh, both are really linked. It's like uh, when, uh, when I'm applying, when I am working with athletes, uh, what really directs your, um, your work, for one part is the theory, but the other part is to, to know that the research is supporting the theory that you are taking as a reference. So... We found, for example, in uh, different projects, one was in, uh, in tennis, which was uh, founded by the Spanish Tennis Federation. The name was Enamorate, and that project was with uh, girls in between 9 and 11 years old. We, in that time, we were good in, in uh, male tennis, but no female. And uh, that was very interesting to know that when the atmosphere was positive, with coaches, but also at home, they were very young, and uh, with the peers, then they had an optimal development. It was, uh, the well-being was higher, high self-esteem, high vitality. They were more satisfied with their lives. They had higher confidence, and they were more self-determined, more intrinsic motives to participate. And we also had similar results in, uh, with young uh, football players. And uh, we also found that when the coaches are social supportive, they are really with empathy with them, autonomy supportive, they create uh, task-involving climates, 
they have a better development and they are really better persons, are better players. That uh, is what we are really interested on. And this is what we link with uh, with Papa. It's like uh, after several decades of, uh, of research, we result supporting these principles uh, based in uh, contemporary theories of motivation and social psychology. My group was really lucky to participate in uh, the Papa project. We were able in that time to to make uh, social or participate in social interventions in football with coaches. In this uh, um, group that uh, John was talking about, a group of experts in Europe and with an international leader. John was our director of the project and that was really, really important for all the process. And they, I think, were years of really hard work with a lot of people involved working in the project, PhD students, other students, colleagues, and we were two universities in Spain. One was the Autonomous University of Barcelona and our university, University of Valencia. And for me, I think what one part that was really, really important, talking about coach, coaches, that it was our focus, is like when coaches were able to understand why why? Why the climate that they created was producing uh, was uh, what they wanted? No more, more, more intrinsic motivation, or more satisfaction of competence, or the climate was making and then to feel more autonomous, or create better social relationships. How they behave, how they were interacting with the coaches, because we all, always say the the coaches know about technique, they know uh, about tactic, they know about football, but sometimes how they communicate is not clear for for promoting the motivation, the quality of motivation that we are interested in. So how they behave, sometimes even they are producing more or less team cohesion. So that part was really important in the project, how the coaches understand um, why. Not only I had to do this because someone told me to do, it's like they know why doing this behavior. If they are gelling the, the, the athletes without any reason, they, they are frustrating, um, for example, the, the motivation or, or frustrating their autonomy. And they know that if something is not working well, they need to change and they know how. So that was, uh, in general, um, our, um, our passion in the moment, knowing that uh, all what we were conducting in research, we were all able to apply and even to, to know why, why we were finding what we were finding in the applied work no, with, with the coaches. All right. Thank both of you. Uh, we're going to be taking a break now. We'll pick up uh, just a little bit about the dissemination of the PAPA project uh, in some of the other countries when we come back. And also looking a little bit at the future of coaching as we're on the long road up. Change your world. Change your life. 
VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. Um, We're just completing uh, getting a picture of this uh, immense project that has taken place um, throughout several parts of Europe. Um, I wondered if either of you wanted to just uh, in a minute or two tie up uh, what's happening now since this main trial has been probably completed, I guess. What happens next? Yeah, well, we... um I mean, first, we're we're trying to do the same type of work in other type of settings. For example, in the UK, we just completed a large project in collaboration with um, a charity named Street Games. And uh, Street Games' aim is to to bring sport to disadvantaged communities. So we work with them to tailor empowering coaching for their coaches and leaders who work in in these contexts and, once again, um, try to deliver it in, in a viable way, but also evaluate what was happening with the young people at risk, as well as um, as, as the leaders. So um, I think all of this is, is trying to, to have an approach for, for rolling out in different types of settings where we can contextualize the material in an optimal way. Um, another aspect is, is as I say, <laughs> we're trying to uh, uh, look at uh, climate change in, in a global way. And maybe Isabel could say just a couple words about um, how we're reaching out in different countries and uh, the work, for example, via Valencia in, uh, in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is an important extension of empowering coaching. It was the adaptation to the Mexican culture. We have in uh, the Autonomous University of Nuevo León in Mexico a group of colleagues that have been collaborating during the last decades, and uh, Dr. Janet Lopez Valle and Dr. Jose Tristan, and they have been um, trained as tutors in Valencia, and they are now tutors of empowering, empowering coaching. And uh, during the, the last two years, we um, are involved in a, a net, international net, the name is Redeca, and it's uh, Mexico, Spain, England, uh, three countries that are coordinating different aspects of the, of the net. It's like there are different uh, lines of action, and one is the, the research part that uh, I'm the, the leader with this part with, uh, with John, and we are applying empowering coaching in this specific uh, project. 
So this is uh, really for them important because the idea of Rebecca is how create quality of sport and healthy sport. So empowering coaching is uh, one of the programs that are helping to to reach the their objective. Yes, and if I could just add to that, sure. I mean, so again, an overarching uh, uh, ambition here, aspiration is is to to have a a hub, a, a larger network of um, individuals. Uh, working at universities, working with their national governing bodies, with their sporting authorities, other sport organizations, charities in their countries, where we can kind of raise the game and start to bring these these truly scientifically grounded training programs uh, into coach education to try to make a difference. So uh, as we try to extend this into the future, um, prognosticating into the future a bit uh, with what you have called climate change. <laughs> Joan, I love that. Um, <clears throat> clearly, when we say a coach or coaching, it, it, everyone is different. Uh, there's no implication that there's just one sort of coach out there. But um, if we generalize a bit, um, I'm wondering if each of you could comment to the extent that you see the position of coach evolving. Um, are coaches in general uh, any different now than they were 20 years ago? And and either yes or no on that, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Um, Isabel, could you comment on that first? Yeah, uh, I think that is a very, very good question. Is like, um, uh, especially I think in Spain, uh, the coaches in general, I think that they have better education. It's like in the past, uh, coaches came from the game itself, and uh, it's like they only were past players. But now uh, they are more coming from physical education and from the sport sciences. Uh, they have this knowledge plus the knowledge to apply, and they are more open to, to new ideas. And what... Uh, the research tell us they are interested in knowing more. And I think that this is a, a positive uh, trend. Mm, and if I, if I look at coach education, um, in some ways it's um, progressed tremendously, in other ways maybe not so. Um, once again, I think uh, the knowledge, especially as you move up through this, the competitive system of strategy, technique, um, nutrition, aspects of physical training, uh, we keep knowing more and more, and coaches are getting uh, better at, at trying to apply this this knowledge. But the psychological part of the story is hit and miss <laughs> within within coach education. And importantly, this part of the psychological aspect of the story, the motivational climate, which is so darn important, um, is either not discussed really at all or given... Um, just you know, lip service touched on here and there, but not in any systematic way. So I think the, the, the dream and the, the, the need here in terms of really trying to change this, this culture of sport is that these are, are truly implemented, whether they're required in coach education awards, coaching degrees, or their CPD, or whatever, that we can get that information out and have that be um, that environment be positive right from the first moment she or he steps onto a tennis court or basketball court or jumps into a swimming pool 
um, uh, that we will have athletes that uh, are more likely to stay engaged, regardless of their competitive, you know, ability level, but also more likely to be healthy. And I, I think that always needs to be um, a dual goal. It's not. It's not one or the other. Yes. Uh, this series, as you know, is focused on women in sport, and um, you mentioned he or she, Joan. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's uh, spend just a couple of minutes here on um, any kind of differences or lack thereof in terms of gender. Do you think there's a difference in um, the approaches that you take with men and women coaches and whether or not they're going to be working with boys or girls, men or women? Yeah, it, it's interesting because, I mean, here and there across the research, sometimes gender um, differences emerge, but not to the extent, I think, that you say there's any um, systematic uh, differences. I, uh, the approach I take it's, it's, is that it's better to assume, and I think more accurate and more adaptive, to assume that uh, first, you know, both males can be empowering and disempowering, um, and what do we also know that if the environment is more empowering, it's beneficial for uh, females and males um, as they grow through the you know, go through the system. Um, so I, I think it, it's not so much a, a gender difference. I think it's more of a, um, a generic approach um, it, um, to change in terms of how sport is 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 delivered. I mean, there are reasons why um, maybe girls would um, break sooner in a disempowering environment, but the point is that boys break as well, and so neither are what we we want. I I think that both of you um, and your colleagues are likely in a better position than most uh, to talk about um, international differences or similarities among the coaching community. Uh, I'm wondering, in in general terms and then also in relation to these gender approaches, um, do you feel that there's very much difference when you compare, say, uh, a USA coaching environment with the European or uh, with the Latin American? What, what kind of um, cultural similarities and differences are you coming into contact with and, and trying to deal with? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, even in the PAPA project, um, we, we saw some differences here and there, but nothing that you would say, okay, this is it. France is this way and Greece is that way. Um, because these countries um, differ in how much coach education is given, the content of that coach education, um, often varies, and then it also often varies by the sport itself. I mean, you know, sports have an incredible. Uh, we talked just talked about gymnastics and versus basketball versus tennis. All these sports have their own culture as 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 well. So, I mean, uh, if you, you talk, if we're speaking about participation. Um, one of the reasons, too, we had such a widespread of countries, at least in the Popper Project, was that the, the number of girls that are involved in football varied tremendously, from Norway, where it was about 60, 40 boys to girls, to Greece, where there were a few girls, I think, on, on the pitch at that time, and hopefully it's changed uh, since then. But, I, I mean, I think the question is, is when you have a model and approach that um, can be tailored, but yet the principles seem to still hold. That's the most important thing. 
when you're working internationally. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, uh, Isabel, I wanted to ask you specifically with regard to the Redica project. So I think you said that was Spain, uh, Mexico, and England. Uh, what kind of uh, cultural differences re- with regard to gender are you seeing, um, if any, in those countries, in, in those programs? Yeah, uh, I, I think that, um, as John explained, is uh, quite uh, more similarities than differences. Like, for example, talking about uh, girls that we had in, uh, in the PAPA project. In Spain, we had uh, even similar girls that in England. And when we talk about the coaching, even uh, in Mexico, when we, we ask our colleagues, and we have the climate questionnaire and to, to compare, um, it's not, uh, it, it, there are more similarities than the differences. I think that uh, when they learn to, to create more like uh, one uh, task involving climate, how they have to support the athletes, are similarities. It's more, perhaps we have the, the conception of uh, the cultural aspects, how the Mexicans or the Spanish or the, the British are, and we, we think that then in the, in, the, in the field are going to be really different, but uh, we found more, more similarities, yeah. Uh, I, I think that most people, especially that are involved in advocacy, uh, hopefully evidence-based advocacy, um, are looking to see a higher proportion of women in the coaching profession. And um, I'm wondering uh, if, if each of you would comment about that. What, what do you think can be done and, and who would be in a position to do it um, to try to encourage more women to move into the coaching role? Well, that's a, that's a um, important, big, and complicated um, issue. Um, I think if we would try to couch it in terms of what we've been discussing today, uh, these concepts of climate are not just uh, what's created uh, on the pitch or on the field by the swimming pool, but climates permeate organizations. And it would seem to me that um, you know if we have sporting organizations being more empowering, that they promote competence, that they promote feelings of belonging for everyone, that they welcome input, that they recognize different perspectives, that they support autonomy, Uh, it would be more likely, whether we're talking national governing bodies or community leagues or whatever, that girls and women would be more likely to want to join the the coaching uh, community and, and, and stay in it. So I do think to some degree, these, these motivational dynamics also can influence how, how attractive, how appealing, how sustainable coaching is um, for, for uh, girls and women. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, um, the questions that I'm asking now in this futuristic segment, we're, uh, we're looking into a crystal ball, which is always a risky proposition. Uh, but it seems, Joan, if I could just characterize what I am gaining from the conversation with both of you, 
um, that some real inroads have been made in terms of getting the um, sport establishment, uh, well, the people that are actually working with, with kids and, and young people, they're listening to you. Uh, now, when we're talking about getting people uh, affecting the climate of the governing bodies, that's another audience. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, again, just uh, crystal balling, do you think that the governing bodies are going to begin to be as open to hearing what you're saying about motivation and climate, that kind of thing, as uh, the people who are working with youth? Hi, well, I think that's where um, policymakers are very important to be involved in that conversation as well. I mean, in the, in the United Kingdom, the government just passed uh, quite a, a, a massive sport strategy. And within that, the point was that all um, sporting organizations, national governing bodies, are going to be evaluated in terms of their uh, impact on social outcomes, well-being outcomes, and and not just um, numbers of uh, participants. And I think when you have that that larger call... (laughs) for for change, then the question is how do you evoke it? Um, At least you get the attention of the sporting organizations then and the people that run them. They they need to think about how to do this, how to meet the government's calls. And that's where I think the kind of the work we're doing fits in, in beautifully. So, you know, if I had that crystal ball and also some wishes from the, the genie, I think it would be you know, someday to be having you know, stakeholders, policymakers at the government level with these individuals that are running our sport organizations, with folks um, like the three of us and, and other colleagues that are, are really out there trying to have it be evidence-based practice and being, bring in um, training that can make a difference. <laughs> From yeah. your lips to the ears of God, uh, you. Um, thank you very much for all you're doing and being on the program today. Next week is our series finale, and we're going to be taking a look at the future of women in sport here in the U.S. and also in Africa, um, that supercontinent of Africa. So tune in for more perspectives on the long road up. Thank you, Carol. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.